Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or at whatever hour you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I will be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. The 61st Annual Missouri Constant History may be over, but the Our Missouri podcast invites listeners to explore the city fountains one last time in this concluding episode of the five-part series entitled Going to Kansas City. Today, we are speaking with Raymond Doswell. He holds a Ph.D. in education from Kansas State University and is the Vice President of Curatorial Services at the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City. In addition to managing the museum's archival collections, he has also published several articles on the history of African-American baseball and the legacy of the Negro Leagues. Welcome to the Arbor, Missouri podcast, Ray. Well, thank you for having me. How did the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum get started? In Kansas City, there were a number of uh, business leaders and baseball enthusiasts, as well as uh, historians and former players, uh, who wanted to preserve uh, the unique history of African-American baseball that um, is has its origins in Kansas City. It was also part of a larger plan to preserve African-American history in the community. The jazz history there is very robust, and there are no musicians and uh, places that mark that history as far as historic locations, buildings, and other things that were dying off, and, and many people in the community wanted to preserve that. A very important person, Horace Peterson, who was spearheading another organization called the Black Archives of Mid-America, was bringing a number of people together in the late 80s into the early 90s to try to preserve this history in three parts. It included well, the Black Archives was preserving in general African-American regional history. Um, there were those who wanted to preserve the baseball history. And it was also a move to, to preserve the jazz history a number of different people were involved in trying to build a jazz hall of fame or a jazz. And Peterson was one of those folks spearheading this effort. And he had invited people like, for example, the great, uh, late great Buck O'Neill, who was a former player, among others, to come to the table to try to pull together perspectives to try to create uh, a building that might house all three entities. Well, actually, three separate buildings that would house each entity within a neighborhood called 18th and Vine, or the 18th and Vine Corridor. In that area, once there were many uh, nightclubs and uh, uh, things that had jazz clubs throughout the area, uh, and some of the great jazz musicians played there, like Count Basie, eventually people like Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, and others, Charlie Parker, who traveled through the area or were from the area. Baseball, too, was important to that region. Near there was the old Parade Park, where Team McCann City Monarchs used to practice. And not far from the area of 18th and Vine was a municipal stadium, which had a number of different names, but was the ballpark where 
uh, or a blue stadium at that time, at the uh, day of the Kansas City Monarchs, where they rented to play baseball games not far from here. 18th and Vine Corridor, 12th Street Vine, which is part of the famous song going in the city. Had theaters, black shops, nightclubs, restaurants, and was an enclave for African-American history, uh, at least businesses and uh, folks in the community. As African-Americans migrated to Kansas City, this is kind of where they were sectioned off in some respects, but kind of built their own community. Um, and there's the lure of jazz, Pentecost era, of um, the, the era that mocked prohibition and other things. And so all this was in the cultural mix. So backing up to your question, um, from the standpoint of preserving baseball history, Mr. Peterson helped spearhead the effort to get some of these other folks together to begin the idea of building the baseball museum among the other institutions. There was some political movement as well. By then, Cong uh, uh, City Councilman Emanuel Cleaver, who Congressman Cleaver, to uh, pump some money into the region along with other uh, redevelopment projects that were happening throughout the city. And uh, that evolved into building one building that could hopefully house all three potential entities the archive, jazz, baseball. Black archives. Mm -hmm. Um, decided not to be part of that initial plan, but the Jazz Museum project became part of the city building that project, and folks with the Baseball Museum um, got on board, but decided to also build their own smaller facility first. Um, there was a 2,000 square foot uh, space that was put in the Lincoln Building, which is part of the neighborhood, uh, with the support of the city. That became an initial uh, opening exhibition. There was also a traveling exhibition that was put together as well. Um, both displays welcomed several hundred fans uh, and, and enthusiasts. Uh, the traveling exhibit uh, also um, was on display at Crown Center Shops uh, um, as an exhibit and there was a great deal of interest in it. Um, this is well before I got involved with the museum. So there are a lot of moving parts in that. There were people coming in and out from the standpoint of business leaders and folks kind of helping to run the museum. But one of the great stories that was often told is that among the former players uh, that lived in Kansas City that uh, all started in a one-room office. And it kind of grew from there uh, with the traveling exhibits and the larger, broader 2,000 square foot exhibit. And the ball players would have to help pay rent <laughs> for the doors to stay open. Uh, and many people did that to help kind of keep things going in the very beginning. Um, by 1994, that 2,000 square foot space was open, and there was always this push to build a larger facility, which became part of a bond issue. And a new building was slated to be built to house both the Jazz Museum and the Baseball Museum. Uh, the Baseball Museum will become part of the project technically renting space from the city to be in the new building. Uh, but we were already attracting lots of uh, folks from around the country for our smaller display. I come on board in 1995, uh, near the end of 1995. And in the midst of that, too, we were hosting uh, different events. Um, 
uh, including what eventually be an early players review uh, that attracted a lot of folks. Uh, that was the 75th anniversary of the founding of the So um, by the time I get there, they've welcomed thousands of visitors, a number of important celebrity guests uh, from across the country in a real effort to uh, get the word out about the fact that this was an attraction that folks could come and learn about this unique history. Central to that, as I mentioned, was Buck O'Neill, uh, who in 94, you might recall, or baseball fans might recall, two things about that year. One, the baseball, Major League Baseball players went on strike in the fall, and ultimately the impasse with the owners caused that World Series. Uh, at the same time, uh, during that fall, the debut of Baseball by Ken Burns also came out at the same time. Mr. O'Neill was a celebrity commentator uh, on black baseball and baseball history. And that catapulted him into national prominence at the same time as the museum effort was going. So with the support of Mr. Burns, um, Mr. O'Neill, that and the fact that People were starved for baseball history or anything baseball. I know as a fan of the game, I was, and I began learning about the Negro Leagues in some part by seeing that, that film. Um, things began to take off for the baseball. Um, the new building was finished in 97. Uh, the Jazz Museum opened in September. The Baseball Museum would open in November, uh, and we've been there ever since, and we continue to expand and grow. So the building is in the 18th and Vine Historical District? That's right. As I noted, 18th and Vine, uh, the 12th Street, uh, is on the east side of Kansas City. Again, uh, as African Americans migrated to Kansas City, um, they ultimately, during the, during the Great Migration period, they ultimately kind of settled on the east side of town, east of Troost Avenue, east of Main Street, uh, and flowing south from downtown um, and in, and so building a community that again was the hub of the jazz and, and nightlife activity that Kansas City became so famous for and as I noted baseball was part of that cultural mix uh, the monarchs in particular were a business that operated in that general neighborhood played near that general neighborhood clothing stores barbecue places um, even car dealership at one point, all in that neighborhood. And uh, part of building the museums was to at least recognize that history, maybe not bring it back to the Pendergast era prominence, so to speak. Uh, right now it's more of a mixed-use neighborhood. There's even churches nearby, but there's apartments, uh, businesses, restaurants, uh, and it continues to grow. Now, with the museum, you're the vice president of curatorial services. What what do you do uh, in that in your responsibilities? Well, in addition to occasionally sweeping the floor and running the cash <laughs> register, <laughs> which you have to do, we are not a large organization. We have maybe about ten full time employees and part time employees, and just a handful of volunteers. Um, my job is primarily to manage exhibits and collections. Uh, I have to be a bit of a jack-of-all-trades uh, in that respect. I can't say I do everything perfectly, uh, but I do the best I can, and I know enough to be dangerous in that way. But uh, I'm the primary museum professional, so that's 
curatorial work, of course, writing and research. Um, I'm in essence the educational director, so when possible, I create and sometimes manage educational programming. Uh, that's adult and youth programming. Um, I'm the registrar. I'm the conservator. I'm the uh, I'm the archivist when necessary. I compete for items at auction uh, when we have resources. Uh, I assist uh, patrons when they have research questions from the youth doing National History Day to uh, the movie studio producers trying to uh, get uniform or costume information correct. We reread television and movie scripts. We, uh, we've advised on many different projects in that way. Um, I manage traveling exhibitions sometimes creating traveling exhibitions. Uh, we have a fairly robust traveling exhibition program as well. Since everyone can't get to Kansas City, those exhibits include things that can go into baseball stadiums as well as fine art galleries. Um, and on the side, occasionally I do social media uh, management of our Facebook page. Um, uh, I give tours uh, at the museum, uh, and I go around the country and speak about uh, black baseball history as well, uh, occasional writing articles and uh, editing books and things like that. Okay. I'd say you, you really do it all, it seems like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do it all. It's not necessarily intentional. Um, we certainly are trying to grow the organization so that I don't have to do it all. But um, uh, as we grow, uh, we hope to be able to do more. Uh, providing research services, one of those things we're hoping to um, expand our service to offer uh, research services by renovating a building nearby the museum, the old Paseo YMCA, which has a historic tie to the baseball history. But um, we're confined in our current facility because we share that with the Jazz Museum, so we don't really have the space to welcome researchers to a library to do real uh, major research. So, um, and we want to target teachers as well to come in and access materials and lesson plans like that that would help them in the classroom. So that that's on the horizon. Um, and with that, we hope to have growth of staff uh, at some point. Okay. Now, what are some of the more prominent collections and exhibits that you have on site? Well, what's interesting about the Negro League's history is Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of surviving artifacts per se. Now, we have a number of artifacts, um, but unlike, say, the National Baseball Hall of Fame, which has been collecting uh, since before 1939 when they officially had their first induction classes and things like that, um, black baseball history certainly wasn't seen as something uh, that was going to be so long-lasting that you'd have a museum or, or anything for it. So a lot of maybe some items that would have rose to the level of having the same cachet as say something from Babe Ruth or others, uh, unfortunately did not survive. Um, and for the players, uh, uh, they may not have even thought of their items as being worthy of saving in that way. Of course, these are, these are the tools of their game, their uniforms and things is very utilitarian. It wasn't anything that they thought would be, survivable from the standpoint of keeping it as material culture. Uh, having said that, some things have come through. Unique uniforms, for example, uh, that we have. Uh, we're fortunate, for example, to have two original Kansas City Monarchs baseball player uniforms 
that are probably close to 70 or 80 years old. Um, one purchased at auction and one that was uh, um, purchased later but was loaned to us initially. Um, somewhat as a result of the fact that we were able to purchase the other one and we it was an expensive purchase and we made a big deal about it in the media and then the person said um, uh, well, well I have one that I've had in my family for years and it's older than that one so <laughs> here you can borrow it and so we were actually able to purchase that one more recently but we've had it had 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 it on loan for over a decade um, so those are some unique items and um, items that are significant to Missouri. Um, what has survived the history and uh, our photographs? And uh, we have a large number of photographs that we've either borrowed or have been, or we've been able to purchase in recent years, or people have either donated originals or allowed us to copy uh, photos to chronicle the history. Uh, the history is somewhat well chronicled through newspapers and African-American newspapers. So photography has, has been uh, one of the primary ways in which we're able to tell the story. Um, and with that, there are some unique photographs. I wouldn't necessarily say they're all rare photographs, but there are some unique photographs uh, and, that I, and at least one or two that I really enjoy. Uh, one that I'll give a quick example of is it's a small Polaroid-like photo from the 50s, maybe four by four inches square, is of a young man, not even in a baseball uniform, he's standing at a train station, literally standing on a train track, in kind of workman's clothes, uh, a dark-skinned young man, the, the sun is shining and squinting from the sun in his eyes, he has a duffel bag next to him on the track, but someone thought to take his photograph. And um, so we have that photo, and then as we were able to acquire a copy of a letter that accompanied the photograph this came from baseball scouts uh, who were recruiting this young man to play baseball and in the correspondence uh, it is said um, uh, that the businessman for the baseball team is talking to the, the gentleman who uh, um, is recruiting a young man and it says that I do think he will develop into a good player one of these days I do think he will develop into a good player one of these well, that young man turned out to play for a team called the Indianapolis Clowns. It was a cross-handed shortstop. And when I mean by cross-handed, he uh, would hold the bat in an unorthodox way uh, to, to hit because they had very strong wrists. Uh, but played briefly with the Clowns before being discovered by minor league teams in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is part of the Braves organization. Going to become the home run champion in Major League Baseball, and that's Henry Aaron. <laughs> and you see a young Aaron, he's uh, 16 or 17 years old in the photograph. And uh, uh, one of the great things about working at the museum is that I had a good fortune of Mr. Aaron comes to visit. He's to see the photograph. <laughs> and uh, he, of course, he brought back a lot of memories for him. Um, and one, one of the labels we have next to the photograph is that his nickname was Porkchop. And, uh, and he re he re and someone asked him, why do they call you pork chops? Well, because I was too afraid to order anything else when I was out going to eat. That's all I knew what I wanted to eat. So uh, pork chops stuck. Uh, do you also have, uh, I've, I've read it about, is there a large autographed baseball collection that you have on site too? Well, yeah, I should certainly note the baseball 
collection. It is uh, a group of uh, single signed baseballs. Um, there are some duplicates, but it's well over 300 balls. Um, they were bought at auction uh, for the museum. And uh, we're fortunate to have those on display. Some unique baseballs in that collection uh, include um, notable former black baseball players such as Don Newcomb, who was a teammate of Jackie Robinson and also played in the Negro League. Um, we have one ball from Tony Stone. Tony Stone was one of the female players who with the men in the Negro League, 50s near the end of the Negro League, but a unique baseball. And maybe one of my another favorite item baseball because again photos and objects are really part of telling stories so there are unique stories that get kicked off from seeing these items and there's a ball by a young Charlie Pride and uh, some folks may know that name or recognize that name from music fame country music fame in particular well Mr. Pride started out playing baseball and in the late in the mid early 50s excuse me um, he was a pitcher in the Negro Leagues for the Memphis Red Sox and uh, also later the Birmingham Black Bears. Um, he was a pretty good pitcher, according to him, and maybe even some others as well. Uh, but he hurt his arm, and uh, fortunately he had the fallback position of being a pretty talented singer. So uh, as our director, Bob Kendrick Doctor says, we should all be so fortunate as to have a backup uh, plan uh, as Charlie Pride did. Um, the other unique thing, though, about the collection and that we're fortunate, again, to be able to have such great interest in patrons that the balls were purchased for us by Getty Lee. And uh, some folks may also know that name because Getty Lee is uh, singing for the band Rush, a uh, uh, recently inducted Rock and Roll Hall of Fame group. And uh, Lee's the bass player and lead singer and um, is a baseball enthusiast, collector of baseball memorabilia probably has some very unique single items that probably are more valuable than that entire baseball collection. But he had a friend in Kansas City who also helped him with memorabilia purchases, encouraged him to come visit the museum while the band was on tour. He loved the museum. They found the collection. Uh, they purchased it for us, and then he was able to come back and dedicate the collection. Uh, so he's very excited, and he's often interviewed about that now. And uh, we're fortunate to have him as a friend. Um, it's it, it's great to be able to have these opportunities when folks uh, appreciate uh, what you're doing, appreciate the efforts that you're doing, and then someone in his position and interest uh, to uh, help us uh, secure these items. And they're great. Uh, a great conversation started when folks come. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from this week in history in a Missouri Minute. I'm Bob Pretty with this Missouri Minute about the State Historical Society of Missouri, which was formed in Arkansas by a bunch of newspapermen holding their Missouri Press Association convention there. The Press Association in the 1890s was meeting in Kansas City when the publishers of the Shelbina Democrat proposed the association create a society to preserve Missouri's newspapers. Plans were drawn, and the next May, the society was established in Arkansas. In 1899, the society became a trustee of the state, eligible for state aid. It published its first work in 1903, and in 1906, it started publishing its quarterly magazine, the Missouri Historical Review. The society led in a number of important ways. In 1931, for example, Missouri became the first state to mark completely a modern cross-state highway with historical markers. Through the years, the society has opened research centers in St. Louis, Kansas City, Rolla, and Springfield, 
to better serve Missourians and their interest in history. And soon it will open a new research center in Columbia. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. Now, in 2020, it's going to be the centennial of the Negro National League. And that has a history in Kansas City itself. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So I mentioned earlier our efforts to renovate the Paseo YMCA building. And it was in that building, uh, which has its own unique history in the black community. It was an African-American YMCA when YMCAs were segregated. And it was built um, through a challenge grant by the Rosenwald Foundation. And, uh, historians may be familiar with Rosenwald, Julius Rosenwald, who was part of the Sears and Roebuck um, um, family and uh, fortune. He helped build a number of African-American schools across the South, Carolinas, and Tennessee. He would, the, the foundation, they would put up part of the money and the community raised the rest of the money and they would build the schools. Uh, well, he did the same thing with a few other uh, organizations, including YMCAs. And, and even though uh, he was Jewish and the YMCA was a Christian organization, uh, he helped support that. And the Paseo YMCA building was one such project. And it was dedicated in 1914, then opened. And so this became an important meeting place for folks in the African-American uh, to go. And um, black baseball at that time uh, was, it's, it's, you might call it, I know someone might call it disorganized, but um, there were teams really across mostly the Midwest, but in the East and other places, and everyone was claiming that they were the best or this team was the best, but at the same time, too, it wasn't stable in that they were playing independently. They were traveling across the country as, as if they were just entertainment act. There was no league schedules. There was no leagues. There were attempts to create leagues in that you have uh, teams, groupings of teams agreeing to play common opponents on a schedule to determine a champion at the end of a season or, or series of games. Um, but there were no formalized leagues, although there were attempts to do that, kind of started and stopped. Um, at the same time, in America, um, um, during the Great Migration period, in this period, after World War One, the race riots across the country, and in baseball, uh, you had the so-called Black Sox scandal of Chicago White Sox avoiding with gamblers to throw the World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. And it was this pressure among black media uh, editors against the independent black baseball teams who you ought to get organized. There's an opportunity to kind of elevate your game and maybe even uh, get black players recognized to play Major League Baseball to, uh, to, you know, to combat the image of black people, uh, the stereotypes of black people, as well as work on this, this issue of, of cheating in the game, clean up the game as well. So push from a lot of black newspaper folk to get the independent team owners to come together and create a league structure. Uh, the attempts to meet formally landed in February of 1920, and the meeting place was the YMC. Um, and in that meeting, they hashed out the creation of a governing body for the baseball players, and then through that formed the Negro National League. Uh, and so Kansas City, in, in essence, is one of the birthplaces of black baseball. 
Now, there are many other cities that could claim an important part of that history because among the rep cities represented, even in that meeting, included Chicago and St. Louis, uh, Dayton, Ohio, uh, among others. Uh, but Kansas City, in essence, was the birthplace of the Negro Nationalism. And from there, unlike other attempts at leagues in the 1800s or before, this one was more sustainable. It lasted up through 1920 to around 1930, stopped for a brief period during the Great Depression era, and then kind of picked up again around 33 up until uh, 1960. Um, and through the period in which we have integration to baseball, that includes 1945 to 47 when Jackie Robinson comes to play. Okay. Now, at the museum, are you working on any plans to commemorate this centennial in 2020? Our hope is to commemorate it, uh, usually on February 13th, which is the date that we recognize for the meeting. Uh, we do something, uh, not always in a big way, but we do something to talk about the fact that this is the anniversary of the Pion. Uh This year, we hope to unveil an official Centennial logo that will take us to 2020. Uh, and uh, our goal is to have small events uh, throughout the year in 2020. Uh, but culminate at the end of the year, around November, with more of a gala celebration. But we'll continue to put out our traveling exhibitions and do our other educational programming uh, with the eye towards recognizing the anniversary. Now, you mentioned some of the teams there, especially Indianapolis, uh, and some of the kind of foundational communities, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Chicago. Uh, but... Tell me a little bit about the history of the Kansas City Monarchs, since that is kind of one of the major teams that people often associate uh, with the Negro Leagues. Well, there was baseball in Kansas City um, for many years, white baseball uh, and uh, minor black baseball in the region, including the Kansas City, Kansas area, uh, as far back as 1908, maybe even a little further back. Um, so baseball was very popular in Kansas City. Uh, ultimately, um, there was a push to get a black baseball team in Kansas City as part of this founding of the Negro National. Um, Kansas City was recognized as an area for the leagues as a western outpost of sorts. It was certainly was a city that was growing in black population because many folk were moving there to work in the the meatpacking industries and the railroad industries and others. So there was a built-in audience growing for black baseball. So folks recognized, folks who were organizing leagues, in particular Andrew Foster, Rube Foster from Chicago, who would become the league's first president, recognized the significance that Kansas City could hold as a place for hosting a baseball team. But the leagues were primarily meant to be an African-American-owned business. Who in Kansas City area could organize a team and make it sustainable? Well, they turned to a white man, and that ended up being J.L. Wilkinson. Uh, Wilkinson, from Iowa, was a baseball player himself, had a number of semi-pro uh, uh, teams that traveled in and around the Midwest, uh, including an integrated team they called the All-Nations team that included black, white, uh, Asian, or Hawaiian, and even one woman on the team as an attraction. Um, so he had, through his baseball circles, had lots of connections to fields, to places to play, 
um, and things like that. They turned to him to form a team in Kansas City. And through that, he was able to recruit some very talented players, partly on recommendation of other. Uh, part of the story is that Casey Stingle, who's from Kansas City, later on would become the manager of the New York Yankees, uh, recommended a number of players to Wilkinson when he was in the military. And a lot of those players were African-American players. Uh, and so one of the early names, according to Janet Bond, who wrote a, a history of the Monarchs, they would become the Army team because there are a lot of former Army players who ended up being part of the core of the Monarchs. One of the other core players who wasn't in the Army was John Donaldson, pitcher who had already, in the pre-Negro League era, had established himself as an outstanding pitcher in the Upper Midwest, Minnesota, and other places. Um, but Wilbur Rogan was one of those Army veterans from the 25th Infantry, among others that would become part of the core of the Monarchs team, and they became a really good team, a very substantial team from the standpoint of longevity. Wilkinson recruited, was able to recruit some of the best players, including uh, Cuban players like Jose Mendez and others, uh, and they had a lot of early success in the Negro League, and were really one of the few teams that lasted from the beginning to the end of 1920-1960. Well-established teams. And among their other stars, I mentioned Brogan. Um, Hilton Smith later on was a great pitcher, your Hall of Famer. Perhaps the most famous of them all was Leroy Page, Satchel Page, who had played, had his notoriety with many other teams, including in Pittsburgh and other places. Uh, but when he came to the Monarchs, his stardom grew even more. After being injured for it, initially, um, became a superstar in the Negro League. Uh, uh, the Monarchs are beloved uh, historically in the community now, thanks to the And they're remembered probably the team that most folks around the country remember, among other teams. But they were considered the longest uh, championship team. Now at the museum, there's kind of one focal point at the end that people often talk about and, and really gets highlighted. It's this kind of field of legends that highlights the kind of baseball diamond and features uh, kind of almost life-size statuaries of prominent individuals. Can you talk about some of those people who are remembered in that display? Before I get to that, it's important to understand the significance of the field in this way, in that when you come to the museum, you can see the field you're not allowed to walk onto the field until mm-hmm. you've gone through the museum and you've learned all the history through photos, small films, and exhibits and artifacts. And then the idea is that you can walk onto the field at the end uh, and endure the history, but then you see the, the place of glory, so to speak, at the end. Um, and the Field of Legends includes statues of some of the uh, great Negro League players. We weren't trying to necessarily honor players uh, just because they're in the Hall of Fame, for example, the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And let me just quickly just say the significance of that is that we're not a Hall of Fame. We're not the Black Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, Baseball and Negro Leagues existed because of segregation. We don't want a segregated Hall of Fame. So we try to tell the story of everyone from the Bat Boys to the great hitters. If we can, we have information. But we were fortunate in that when we built the museum, the National Baseball Hall of Fame had recognized a number of players, of which became the models for the players. 
So we mentioned Leroy Page, uh, great catcher. Josh Gibson is the catching position. Buck Leonard, great first baseman. Uh, John Henry Pop Lloyd, second base. William Judy Johnson at shortstop. Ray Dandridge at third. In the outfield, uh, we have Leon Day, who's playing a little out position. He was known as a pitcher, but also an outstanding outfielder. Um, in center field is Oscar Charleston, one of the great, not only pre-Negro League players, but became also a manager in the Negro Leagues later. And uh, James Thomas Cool Papa Bell in the, is the other outfielder uh, who spent a lot of his career and lived at the end of his life in St. Louis. Um, outstanding uh, speedster uh, outfield in Negro League, uh, considered one of the fastest baseball hitters. Um, and we also have a batter, uh, Martin DeHigo, who talk about the great Cuban connection, Latin connection, outstanding pitcher in the Negro Leagues, but also was a, a high average batter in, in Negro Leagues baseball. And most recently, we added an umpire, uh, Bob Motley, who was an uh, uh, umpire late in the history of the Negro Leagues, but a long time supporter of the museum. Uh, the community wanted to Folks in community knew him, wanted to honor him, and noted that when we built the museum, we didn't have an umpire on the field. So they raised the money to build his statue, and so we recently added the umpire. So um, those are the folks on the field, and there are two other statues that are just off the field. We do have a statue of Andrew Foster, Ruth Foster, the, one of the founders of the Negro League, in the era where it talks about 1920 and the formation of the league. Then Outside the chicken wire fence, looking at this baseball game on the field is Buck O'Neill, the uh, manager of this uh, all-star team, if you would, watching this all-star game and players uh, on the field. Wow, it's fascinating. Really, really quite interesting to hear their stories and 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 everything connected with them. And since this is a podcast that kind of focuses in on Missouri and Missouri history to an extent, uh, are there any kind of notable players that came from the state of Missouri? Well, yeah, uh, certainly players who are from Missouri and who had an impact on Missouri uh, in particular. Um, we talked about Donaldson, uh, uh, who I believe is from the Admore Mobley area, uh, but uh, traveled all over the country and considered perhaps one of the greatest early century pitchers uh, of them all. Uh, uh, players who um, who had an impact on Missouri. We talked about Page, an icon in Lansing. Bell, who played with the St. Louis Stars. Um, and uh, even though he was from Mississippi, uh, was an outstanding long-time uh, player who kind of made his home in St. Louis, uh, but played in Pittsburgh, played in Latin America, uh, and Coached briefly in Kansas City, again considered one of the fastest men in baseball history. Um, some players maybe that you hadn't heard of, like the Alex Smiths from St. Louis, knuckleball pitcher in the um, Henry Mason is from Moberly, Missouri. Uh, he's still alive, but Reverend Henry Mason now uh, uh, was a teammate of Satchel Page. One of the more famous uh, Missourians uh, to play in a Negro League was Elston Howard. Elston Howard, born in St. Louis, uh, or lived in St. Louis as a, as a youngster, went to Vashon High School, was an outstanding baseball, and I believe 
a basketball player, may have even been football, an outstanding athlete. He was a large kid at the time. Um, but also played catcher and outfield uh, in baseball. Had opportunities to go to college, but got a ch opportunity to play with the Kansas City Monarchs uh, in the Negro League. Uh, right around the time of the integration of baseball. And had a great deal of success. To the point that in the 50s, he would be recruited by the New York Yankees. Uh, and would become the first African American to play for the New York Yankees. The Yankees were one of the last teams to integrate in. They had a lot of success in Major League Baseball and maybe felt that they didn't when the big movement and big push was happening to get African American players didn't feel the pressures. Or maybe they just weren't in a hurry to integrate. But at the same time they they eventually came around and found Elston Howard, who's a very good player uh, from St. Louis. I think there was a bit of irony in that also. Uh the player uh that would become his teammate, and I think eventually become his friend, was also St. Louis and uh, Yogi Berra. And they both played the same position. Uh, and they were both longtime favorites of Yankee fans. But ultimately, it was Howard who was one of the players to supplant Berra as he moved on and managed. So um, there's that great Missouri connection there. So Missouri plays a very important role. The teams like the Monarchs, and the St. Louis Stars, before the Stars, there were the St. Louis Giants. The Stars had some championship seasons and had great teams. Monarchs, the same. Uh, and there were smaller baseball teams in and around the middle part of the state. But really, those were the two anchor teams as far as professional black baseball in this region. And they really had an impact uh, in traveling across the region, uh, traveling to the bi-state areas. Uh, and really bringing a great deal of entertainment and business uh, to folks in those areas. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. If you're in the mood for a little bluegrass music to kick off your summer, Raw is the place to be on May 19th for the Ozark Picking Time. This afternoon, music and memories will be held at the Cedar Street Playhouse in Raw and features Jimmy Allison and Midnight Flight, Jerry Rosa and the Rosa Stringworks Band, and Meredith Sisko and Accomplices. This event is free and open to the public, though registration is appreciated. While you're there, be sure to check in with staff from the State Historical Society of Missouri to learn how the Historical Society is preserving the state's rich musical history. With the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center slated to be closed from spring to midsummer 2019 for the move to the newly constructed Center for Missouri Studies, you only have a few weeks left to view three featured art exhibits. In the corridor gallery, the exhibit Work Artwork consists of art by staff members and volunteers from the Historical Society's six research centers across the state. In the main gallery, visitors will find two exhibits, Benton's Perilous Visions and the Aesthetic of the Monumental Figure. To learn more about these and other exhibitions, please visit shsmo.org art exhibits. National History Day in Missouri is looking for educators, historians, writers, filmmakers, museum staff, and community members to join them at this year's state contest to judge student projects. State contests will be held on April 27, 2019 at the University of Missouri in Columbia. To thank you for your essential participation in National History Day in Missouri 2019, the State Historical Society of Missouri will provide a light breakfast and lunch 
plus a travel stipend of up to $50 for judges whose round-trip mileage exceeds 75 miles. National History Day in Missouri is a unique opportunity for middle and high school age students to explore the past in a creative, hands-on way by producing a documentary, exhibit, paper performance, or website on a topic of their choosing. To learn more about National History Day in Missouri, including judge orientation and how to start a program at your own school, please visit shsmo.org nhdmo. Great news! Come to the Historical Society's Columbia Research Center's main gallery for an extended showing of the pop-up exhibit entitled Show Me Missouri Women. This exhibit showcases materials that share the story of how women helped shape the Show Me State. Society archivists have selected a wide array of their favorite photographs, letters, art, journals, and other artifacts illustrating the changes in gender roles and women's ongoing fight for equality. If you're interested in learning more about Missouri's upcoming Bicentennial in 2021, there will be three opportunities in March to hear from Bicentennial Coordinator Michael Sweeney. On March 12th, Michael will be at the Friends Room of the Columbia Public Library. On March 16th, Michael will be joined by Senior Archivist Claire Marks at the Jefferson County Library's Northwest Branch in High Ridge. On March 26th, Michael will be at the Callaway County Library in Fulton. To register and learn more about these events, please visit the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org events. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our-missouri.